Welcome to Miked Up with Cairo Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandon Steele. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's given the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. Welcome to Miked Up with Cairo. This is Brandon Steele and Tim Bertelsman. We are going to give you a ton of information that is... Mostly factual. Mostly, except the stuff we make up. But you're going to enjoy today's episode. We've got a couple of great research studies for you. We're going to take a deep dive into thoracic outlet syndrome. And then we're going to answer a couple of questions. So let's jump in. What's happening in practice? The number one thing happening right now, and we're in private practice, so we still practice uh, 25, 30 hours a week. Uh, Tim's here every once in a while. We see him roaming around the parking lot. Um, however, one thing that we make sure we hit hard at the very beginning of the year, we do it all year long, but it is MD marketing. And MD marketing is not complex. It is extremely simple. It's called having lunch with your uh, with your friends in the medical office. These are people who are managing your same patients. These are the people who have the same interests and wants that you have. They are looking to uh, get people out of their problems, and in this case, pain. Um, however, they want to do it fast. They want to do it without many headaches. Uh, there is nobody better to manage cases than us. So one thing we do is every six months, we visit these offices. We tell them what we do, why we do it, and some new things things happening in the office. And it just, as it turns out, we have just incorporated dry needling. And I think this is one of the, the key points to MD marketing though. It's one to have something new, but much more important, it's to be relatable to them. Meaning they've probably heard of dry needling or acupuncture, or maybe they've heard of chiropractic. Really what they have heard of is a lot of complaining from their patients. So you need to make sure that you're taking what you know and relating that to how you can help them. They need to get their patients out of their office and into someone that can help them. And that just happens to be us for a lot of cases as in dry needling tendinopathies. These are patients that aren't getting great success with uh, typical stretching or rest, relax, or you know, uh, pharmacologics. Uh, this is someone who needs actually manual therapy, manipulation, and in some cases, dry needling. So the research is there. If you have any question on the research and dry needling and tendinopathies, check out the research review section in Cairo Up. Highly recommend doing that for any condition, but this is one that's been just explosive in the research. And keep in mind, for those conditions that need a little more blood flow, a little more healing potential to the area, and you want to create that isolated uh, inflammatory reaction, dry needling may be something that fits into your uh, tool belt. Yeah, it's been something tremendous in our practice. We were excited to see all the research uh, that supported dry needling for tennis elbow and golfer's elbow, patellar tendinopathy and uh, plantar fasciitis, all those things that need a little bit more blood flow. Uh, Brandon and I don't do dry needling ourselves, but we do have someone else in our office who does, Ben. He does a great job and just seen really good results. It's been impressive. So if you're not familiar with it, check out the research buzz is correct. There is something very uh, beneficial for that. And that's a great thing to relay to your primaries. Those lunches that you talked about, Brandon, are something that's really helpful. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do those lunches for the past couple of years because we had this bug in our area that maybe it was in your area too, I'm not sure, but it really shut things down for a while and we weren't able to get out to meet uh, MDs, to talk to them and to have those relationships. One of the things that we did continue throughout that time frame was to make sure we sent the initial reports and the release reports. Anytime a patient came in with a complaint, 
a new complaint, we'd send their primary care physician a letter saying, hey, your patient Mary came in, she had elbow pain, I think that it's tennis elbow, I'm going to do manipulation, some myofascial release, and I'll keep you updated. More importantly, we sent out that release report once Mary was done with care saying, Mary was treated a dozen times and she's 95% better at this point in time, I'm going to release her from care. That's the note that makes all the difference. If you're not using that functionality now to deliver release reports automated through ChiroUp, make sure that you take advantage of that because that's something that does make a difference in MD attitudes. They get to hear about your successes, not just your failures, and it changes their referral patterns. So in addition to lunches, those initial reports and release reports are essential. And that's really all we do to the tune of 300 MD referrals per year. So good luck with that one. It's something that is potent. So diving into the next section of the podcast is probably one of my favorites when we start to talk about the new research. And uh, I was digging through the research review section and I found this one. This is one that um, I think will speak to all of us listening to this podcast. It's do we suppress things or stimulate things? And when it comes to certain uh, medical management, um, it's more to suppress things, calm things down, uh, let the body heal itself. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, for there's some conditions, we need to actually speed up the healing process. So we select methods that allow people to heal versus just calm things down so they can go about their daily habits and cause it again because they didn't fix anything. One thing that I think is important when it comes to this are epidural steroid injections. And I see these and you see these. And I'm not one of those people that digs my head in the sand and says they don't work because they do work on some people. However, we all know that epidurals are going to suppress the immune reaction. And for some people, we may need to do that to calm things down. However, what we found from a new research paper, and it was a bio, uh, uh, Biomedicines in 2022, November, I believe, uh, instead of doing epidurals, they injected these patients with different platelets and plasma-rich and growth factors, um, derivatives, and they found that if they took material that sped up the inflammatory reaction, sped up the healing process, they actually got really good and better results than the epidural steroid injections, and the effects lasted up to two, I'm sorry, one to two years. That's tremendous. You know, steroids don't last that long. So if we can just help people heal um, and we can use uh, different methods that we can uh, do in our office or other people's office, we can really make a long-term uh, play with that patient and, and get them satisfied with our care. Well, that's, that's great information. It's something that we're seeing that really it's not necessarily just the, the product that you're injecting in there. It's the initiation of some sort of body's healing process. Sometimes the epidural suppresses that healing process the steroid injection in the joint suppresses that healing process. We're simply uh, uh, injecting some saline or injecting a dry needle into the area gets almost the same outcomes, which is great news for you and I because we can do the latter. You can inject positive attitude too also, Tim. <laughs> I've been inoculated against that. Anyway, the random fact of the day coming from Journal of Clinical Medicine. They're interested in different types of dizziness and they recognize that cervicogenic dizziness is a big thing and they said that the number one test for cervicogenic dizziness is the cervical torsion test. This is also called Fitz-Ritson's test. A really simple test most of you are familiar with. It's usually putting the patient on a stool that can rotate, and you're going to hold this patient's head steady while they rotate their body underneath their head. What they're doing is they're loading up those cervical facets. So somebody with cervicogenic dizziness is going to have compression of the facets, and they may have exacerbation of that cervicogenic dizziness. Whereas somebody with BPPV or a different source that affects the semicircular canals is not getting stimulation because the semicircular canals aren't moving, you're holding the head. So they said that was the most useful test 
with a, a specificity of 92%, a sensitivity of 72%. That sounds like a pretty good test to me. And one of our challenges is differentiating those two, BPPV and cervicogenic vertigo, because they both don't like movement. They both cause lightheadedness, sometimes a little more intense lightheadedness with the BPPV, but they can look a lot alike. So any test that can help us differentiate that, very useful. If you'd like to dive deeper into the differentiation of dizziness, we just released a webinar and there's also a blog. So there's two resources in Cairo. Check out the blog library and then also go to the resources for the clinical uh, content and the clinical classes and you'll be able to register for that webinar. We'll hope to deliver something that's useful. And next month's podcast is solely on dizziness. So make sure you stay tuned for that one too. Yeah, Tim put together a graph on that and he tried to explain it. And it's going to take about 20 minutes. Um, so it's one of those things that is important. I think one of the things that is difficult as a provider is to sometimes uh, keep people moving and then convince them everything's going to be okay. And one of the hallmarks of great providers is the ability to recognize when things maybe aren't okay and you need to refer them somewhere else. And next podcast uh, concerning vertigo is one of those uh, really challenging things to do as a provider is to understand when we can treat something, which is the vast majority of issues, but then also recognize when there's something we can't treat and to get them in the hands of someone else who uh, maybe is better suited to treat that condition. Do you know what you call a fish with a bow tie? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what? It's a fish decated. I told him we're going to remove the dad jokes part of the uh, podcast and he said he wasn't having it. Um, so, well, you know, what? going into that, uh, really going into the things we can treat and things we can't treat, uh, let's talk about why we're here today. Um, so today is one of those diagnoses that uh, unfortunately often goes overlooked. And we're going to talk about thoracic outlet syndrome or TOS. And so many of us uh, focus on TOS as a pure neurologic issue. And for the 95% of people, it is the neurologic variant. However, there's other structures in that shoulder girdle that can be compressed where we can get arterial TOS and venous TOS. Now, as it turns out, nerves are the most susceptible to compression. And with a little bit of compression, they can really show symptoms fast. Your arteries, your veins, they are a lot more stable of structures and they're not going to cause symptoms as fast. So when you get any compression in the shoulder girdle, you're probably going to see it in the nurse first and we're going to describe the signs and the symptoms and um, what we can do about that in, in the next couple of minutes. But I think the biggest thing to this is when you start to have compression um, in that, 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 that trunk area, uh, we can have things like um, you know, numbness, pain, tingling, and we're, we're, we're very familiar with those as providers. However, when you start to see issues with blood flow, either too much blood getting in or not enough blood getting out, that's when we need to get a little bit more concerned or when we do an orthopedic examination and things just really aren't changing, that's when I start to, uh, to lean into either more tests um, or look at a differential diagnosis that maybe doesn't include a musculoskeletal structure. So let's start off with neurogenic TOS, uh, looking at the, the nerve part of it, and I'll let uh, Dr. B uh, explain uh, the most common causes. Yeah, fortunately, this is the one that presents most of the time, 95% of all TOSs, and I would say even a higher percent that come into our office are, mm. are neurogenic. That's opinion, not fact. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to have a disclaimer for each one of those? We should have that as a quick sound. Uh, the, um, fortunately, these patients, uh, the symptoms will typically tell you that they're having some sort of vascular process. Yeah, they're going to have pain and paresthesia, maybe even possible motor weakness into the affected arm. 
and that's usually going to be exacerbated when they put their arm up. Don't forget that patients who have a cervical disc lesion can look much the same. They have pain and paresthesia, or possible motor weakness into their arm, but they usually like to put their arm above their head. It takes traction off the brachial plexus and is beneficial, whereas a TOS patient doesn't like to put their arm above their head. That's EAST test. That's the arm abduction test. That's a test for TOS, and they usually don't like it. So that's one big differentiating factor. The other one is that most patients who have a cervical radiculopathy will have a problem around C5 or C6, whereas patients with TOS will almost always, 90% of the time, have radicular symptoms into the C8 or T1 distribution. So it's going to go down into their small finger as opposed to their thumb or middle finger. So the distribution and what happens with their arm are very characteristic of, of TOS and can help us differentiate those symptoms. Then once we say, yes, this does sound vascular, we want to vet out which part of the vascular supply is being compressed. Is this happening between the scalene muscles? Remember the, the uh, nerve bundle comes out between the scalene muscles and then it travels between the first rib and the clavicle and then finally underneath the pec minor tendon is that uh, brachial uh, nerve and artery traveling down into your arm. So we have to differentiate is this a scalene TOS, a costoclavicular TOS, or a pectoral TOS. But really it's, it's Yes, we need to find those sites, but the symptoms are all the same. So when you get that numbness and tingling in the fourth and fifth digit, that really should be TOS until proven otherwise. And what we find is that that area of the spine, that CAT1 area, is somewhat protected at the spine level. That's where you have a very stable rib cage, and that, that, that force doesn't normally start to cause issues until you start to get up to C6 and C5, where we see the vast majority of our degenerative changes and, and, and disc problems. So when we start to see problems here, I start to lean towards a peripheral site of pain, and, upper, I'm sorry, peripheral site of compression. And, and I, I guess we really even shouldn't say compression, we should say injury, maybe stretch, maybe uh, inflammation something is causing some abnormal pressure against that nerve. Uh, there was a study by, oh geez, Tremblis, uh, T-R-E-M-B-L-A-I-S. Uh, once again, looking at the, the research review in Cairo Up, I, I love going through this section, just finding new interesting things that kind of keep you excited about practice. Not that seeing patients isn't exciting, but you know, when you could try new things out, it makes it somewhat, somewhat fun. Um, but it talked about nerve adhesions because this is something I think is very important. The same as, as kind of looking at trigger points is, yeah, you can find these sites within the body, but really what do you do with it? And uh, what they looked at is when you have a site of nerve elongation, or we'll just call stretch or uh, elastic deformation of that nerve, uh, nerves are actually pretty good. They can stretch up to about 8% and they can be just fine. Unfortunately, if you leave it there for a long period of time, or if that stretch reaches uh, 15 to 16%, now we start to see severe ischemia, irreversible damage to the external transport throughout that entire nerve. So it really is up to us. And I say that uh, because if these patients slip through uh, their normal provider or another chiropractor and they don't get this diagnosis and that compression or ischemia remains, it can cause long lasting damage. Uh, so we really wanna make sure that we can assess this very quickly. Uh, now we're gonna give you the test, the most sensitive specific test, and then you know, possibly just as important, treat it effectively. One of the most interesting things that I see in practice when I talk with young providers is they always wanna see more patients. They wanna treat patients faster 
And while we always can get more efficient, so I'm not going to say anything negative about that. However, I always um, put, put it back on them and say, listen, uh, there's only so much you can do in so much time. However, it's the evaluation that matters. If you can evaluate faster and you can come up with the right diagnosis for the right patient at the right time, you're not wasting your patient's time or your time doing unnecessary treatments or exercises. So really look at these exercises uh, and, and evaluations because if you can knock out the right diagnosis the first time, you're really gonna have a bunch of promoters coming in your practice and most importantly, leaving your practice, telling everybody about what you do. So when it comes to TOS, there's some tests that we don't do and some historical tests that maybe have been shown uh, to have uh, more effective or more uh, specific counterparts. Uh, so we'll go through those and then also uh, try to keep it simple and that way we can give you the right treatments and the right exercise for it. I think the most important test that I like because it's the simplest is called the brachial plexus compression test. If you forget what that's called, you can also call it Morley Morley's test or you can call it push on it and if it makes symptoms worse it's probably a problem somewhere underneath your fingers um, and this is one of those where you push in the thoracic outlet right along those scalenes where the the nerves drop the neurovascular bundle drops into uh, or underneath the clavicle and when um, it reproduces symptoms going down the arm that's a positive test and as it turns out about 68 percent of tos patients have this positive so once again you push in the side of the neck voila numbness tingling sending down the hand uh, we should be looking at a peripheral neuropathy. This would be the Vulcan death grip, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> this test, the, the one that you just described, is part of the classic evaluation for any neuropathy. Either you compress it or you stretch it. Think about carpal tunnel syndrome. We're going to do phalans to compress it or reverse phalans to, to stretch it. Any neuropathy is not going to appreciate some extra compression. Now, if something's already compressed, though, it might appreciate some relief. And the next test that, that's one that's a little bit newer is the Syriax release maneuver. And this is a test that the literature has vetted to say, yes, this is a beneficial test. This goes by the principle of what would happen if we took the stretch off the nerve. Don't forget that a lot of these patients have their shoulders that are tractioning down. All right, hold on. I just covered on the screen. Spell Syriax. Um, S <laughs> U. <laughs> so a lot of these patients have their shoulders that are tractioning down. Maybe they've been sitting with their, their laptop or they're sitting with their phone in front of them all day long. They've developed short pecs, short tight traps, and now their shoulders are tractioning down onto that neurovascular bundle. Those patients with that forward head, forward shoulder posture have more trouble. So what we're going to do is say, what happens if we take some of that pressure off? In this instance, the patient is sitting down. Their arms are pointing straight forward. They're imagining they're sitting in an armchair with their arms resting on the arms. And you're going to then go behind them, reach underneath their arms as though you are the armchair, and then lift up. And as you lift up on those shoulder girdles, if they're having some side of compression, especially a costoclavicular compression, that's going to provide some increased space and it's going to allow blood to come back to the nerve. So when we see a decrease in the, in the numbness, or a decrease in the paresthesia or pain, now we can be certain that this is probably something that's being compressed and it appreciated the relief. Don't forget though that sometimes patients might have a little increased paresthesia if they were numb. In the same way that when your arm's hanging over the back of the chair and you realize, hey, I think my hand's numb, you take your arm off the chair, the paresthesia increases momentarily, 
before it goes away. So you might need to do this test for a little longer than a few seconds to see is, the, is that symptom truly improving along the way. So as we go through these tests, you can do a couple of things. One, you can try to grasp it from our descriptions, which is gonna be difficult. Um, you can go on YouTube, you can go on Google, and you can find these tests. However, if you wanna see a video demonstration with, uh, with, with verbiage and also the actual sources with the sensitivity and specificity, all that is in Cairo up. Uh, so please check that out uh, and you can actually get a, a good view of what, what's going on. You would need to spell it though. Uh, Syriax, yeah. I use this thing called Grammarly for everything. This is an unsolicited uh, um, uh, ad for Grammarly. I don't know how I got through high school or college. Um, now with Grammarly, I don't even attempt to spell things properly. Uh, it just fixes everything. Uh, the next test is Wright's test, and Wright's test is probably one of the more uh, positive tests uh, because when we have issues with the PECs, which is most of our patients with our scapular dyskinesis, with our upper crest syndrome, have hypertonicity in the PECs. Now consider this though, that whenever you have um, tension in your PECs due to those postural syndromes, it's often bilateral and TOS is often unilateral. So just because you have ten tense PECs doesn't mean you're gonna have thoracic outlet syndrome. However, with Wright's test, you're gonna bring the arm all the way back into um, external rotation and, um, and extension. Uh, you're gonna compress the, uh, the neurovascular bundle underneath that pec and stretch that pec over that spot. And uh, if we get reproduction symptoms, uh, that's gonna be a positive test. And you can go ahead and treat that appropriately with your manual therapy or stretching that you do in your office. So that one nails down if it's a pec minor compression. One thing that we can do to, to figure out is this a costoclavicular compression is the costoclavicular test. And this is a matter of, again, monitoring that patient's radial pulse while they're seated and taking that patient's arms back as they push their chest out. So an exaggerated military posture, basically. If we have a diminution in pulse along with a concurrent increase in symptoms, that's a positive test. Remember, just the diminution in pulse without the reproduction of symptoms, we need to check the other side to say, is it different from side to side? Because it's not unusual to see some diminution in pulse. A couple other tests that we've used historically would be Adson's test, which is monitoring that pulse, and then having the patient rotate toward the side that you're monitoring. That's thought to scissor the scalene muscles and cause some compression of the neurovascular bundle in the neck, or modified Adson's, which is, is having the patient rotate in the opposite direction. And then finally, the classic test would be Ruse test, which is also EAST test, which is elevated abduction of the shoulder. And that's kind of uh, your hands up position, as though you're being held up at a gas station and in Brandon's neighborhood, and then finding out, does that cause some numbness and tingling along the way? Now, the Journal of Sport Re Rehabilitation a couple of years ago said that we probably should stop performing Adson's uh, and Ruse test or EAST test because it was not as effective as the Syriax test or Wright's test or even the brachial plexus compression test. But there have been other studies to say, well, maybe they are still useful. So I keep Ruse test as part of my evaluation. Um, and it's one thing that gives me a little bit more confidence in making that diagnosis. And once we've made that diagnosis, then the big question is, we've identified you have thoracic outlet syndrome. This is the likely culprit of where it's coming from. And what are we going to do in order to treat that? And so orthopedic testing is obviously extremely important to um, really hone in on the site of compression. Um, what I would say though, is a lot of times, in fact, almost all the times, our patients cause their own problems. So during your evaluation and also your history taking process, start to talk to your patients about certain things uh, as far as what's changed in their activities or hobbies or sports, 
um, daily life. Uh, one of the things with the costoclavicular area is that soft tissue injury uh, and trauma is one of the number one causes for any kind of costoclavicular TOS. If you get a fracture, most of your fractures in your clavicle are on that middle one third. Well, there's only so much space there. And unfortunately, if that fracture happens to be displaced um, and there's a callus that forms, now you have a decreased space in that area. We also have our patients that fall on an outstretched arm or fall on the tip of their shoulder and get a dislocation of that acromion. And those things can also cause uh, decreased space. So talking to the patient, getting the full history, and not just doing orthopedic test blind and treating those structures, but really dive down deep and find the, the origins of that problem. Yeah, once, we, once we've nailed that down, then we have the magic tools to make that patient uh, feel a whole lot better and to get rid of the symptoms that may have been elusive for a long period of time. We want to make sure that we're doing things to help correct their posture, giving them postural advice. We're going to look at the whole chain, though, from a manipulation and soft tissue standpoint. That we're going to look at the cervical spine, we'll look at the shoulder, look at the elbow and the hand and the wrist to determine are there any joint restrictions there, are there hypertonic muscles that need to be worked out. A lot of these patients have a double or multi-crush syndrome where the, yes there's some compression that's going on in between the scalenes and there's some hypertonicity in the pecs, maybe there's some joint restriction in the cervical spine, there's some hypertonicity in the wrist flexors or some cubital tunnel syndrome. Just making sure we look at that whole chain and, and releasing whatever is the culprit, especially paying attention to nerve mobilization. That nerve mobilization of the ulnar nerve in particular, if it's affecting the C8 distribution, is something that's really helpful for that patient. Uh, going through, you were talking about the joints and, and I, I mean, obviously, as chiropractors, there's, there's nothing more fun than uh, hearing some, some cavitations, some pops and cracks. Um, however, that first rib is one of those highly debated um, things that should you remove it. And as it turns out, if you do remove it, it solves a lot of symptoms. But it's interesting with the incidence and prevalence of those first ribs is there are only about 10% of the population have one. Uh, and when someone has one, it's almost always on both sides. However, only less than 10% of those 10% have TOS. So it doesn't seem like it's really the problem, meaning if you have a first rib, you just don't have to get it cut out. However, if you do have TOS and you remove it, it does free up some space, you know? So it's kind of like getting a laminectomy, not really, but kind of, um, that maybe isn't the problem, um, however, is, is part of the solution. The last part um, is the treatment is really the most important part in my mind. It's going after that um, postural stress. And so many people want to relate their injury to an activity. I did this, I picked up this, um, I started this sport. Well, as it turns out, as those stresses can cause injury, most of the stresses and most of the injuries that you and I see in office are actually just due to postural stresses. So changing their workstation, um, changing the way they sit in their car or get out of their car or the way they sleep are all extremely important ways to help solve this problem. And it shouldn't be treated as one versus the other, meaning if you have A, B, and C that are all wrong with someone, don't fix A and C how things go. Fix A, B, and C. Uh, and ADL modification should be on your, your short list of things to look after. And then also look at the, uh, the external loads that could be causing that. Now, we all know internal loads are far greater than external loads when it comes to the body. However, things like a heavy briefcase, a laptop case, I've got kids in middle school and high school, I don't even think I could carry the book bag that my 12-year-old uh, daughter carries. It's got books and laptops and uh, a change of clothes and makeup and all those other things in there that I don't even want to think about. Uh, but really taking those things in consideration will, uh, will help get to the root cause. So really when we, we look at most of the types of TOS, they are neurologic. They are things that we can help with. There is a mechanical sensitivity. They belong in our office. 
However, there are some types of TOS that maybe are not supposed to be in our office. These are the 5%. Uh, these presentations um, are extremely important to understand, to recognize, and then also to know what to do with. Uh, when a patient comes in and they have uh, an issue with TOS, but it's not numbness or tingling, and instead they get this achiness that extends down into the arm, uh, it's kind of better and worse with moving the arm or the, the hand, but it's just kind of there. You start to see some uh, pulselessness. You start to see some paresthesia. Maybe the arm's turning a little bit of blue. It's achy. It's weak. Um, and it's only one side versus the other, we have an issue. Well, your patient has an issue. Uh, they're part of that 1% that has an issue with that subclavian artery. And, and normally it's not on the outside of the artery. It's not something pushing into the artery. Instead, it's something within that artery that's not allowing blood flow to get through. And when this happens, this is serious. So this is uh, called arterial TOS. And this is someone that you or your staff gets to the emergency room as fast as possible. This is something significant. It's not something that we're going to be able to help uh, and with the vast majority of chiropractors that we work with don't uh, have the skills to, or the, the, the degree or the ability to treat this. This is someone that needs to go see a vascular surgeon or, or at least an emergency department uh, as soon as possible. Yeah, and the classic sign of that is the pulselessness, regardless of position. If there's something internally in the artery that's precluding that blood flow, then we're going to have a decreased pulse regardless of what position it's in. The cousin to that one is if blood can't get back out. So this would be a venous TOS. It's a little bit more common, up to 5% of all TOS. And this is going to be that deep aching discomfort in the patient's chest or shoulder or arm. Really, any deep aching in the chest warrants an urgent referral. But this is going down into the arm. There's symptoms that are worse with activity. And you're going to see some blood flow back up. It's going to be swollen or cyanotic. Those patients who have any of those types of vascular concerns belong somewhere else. So shipping that out sooner than later. We're going to dive into um, surgical considerations, uh, uh, thoracic, the clinical pearls, the things that we should be concerned about. We're also going to go into the treatment section of TOS. Um, but before we do that, um, our marketing managers came in here and said, we're supposed to tell you to hit the subscribe button. That uh, Tim and I love doing this podcast. This is something we really enjoy doing. And we're just trying to see who else is enjoying it as much as we do. Uh, we can speak about um, our opinions all day long and, and interject a couple of facts every once in a while um, and if you if there's something in here that you uh, kind of have a question about you can always email us if uh, you're looking for a very astute um, uh, answer that uh, is all factual it's brandon at chiroop.com um, if it's a real softball question that you're really not looking for a serious answer uh, tim at chiroop.com uh, but hit the subscribe button let us know that you like the podcast and if you don't shoot us an email um, let us know what's going on uh, and hopefully we we can answer questions on the podcast or do it through a, a different means. So diving into the, um, the surgery aspect of it, clearly Tim is not a surgeon and I am not a surgeon. However, this is one of those things that needs to be on our radar because if there's a treatment that's not within your specialty, 
That doesn't mean someone doesn't need it. It just means something you don't offer. And if patients have progressive motor deficit, um, that's when we really need to dive into maybe some advanced imaging uh, and possibly even a referral. Now, surgery for TOS is still controversial. Um, however, if they're not getting better with your care, we need to be considering other people that maybe can care for that patient. Uh, so when we dive into the very bottom of TOS, really, I, I want to just be clear um, that if you do start to notice blood flow restriction issues, uh, whether it's getting blood in or getting blood out, we really want to make sure we, we let that person uh, get in the right hands. Uh, and then also the ulnar nerve distribution, that fourth and fifth digit, that unfortunately these patients are having issue in the, um, the neck and the shoulder, but they're not feeling the symptoms down into the lower arm. They're going to think the problem is a little bit distal, and it's up to you to convince them and show them through orthopedic testing and through your clinical expertise that the problem is actually a little superior uh, up in the neck and shoulder area. Yeah, one of the classic tests for that is what happens when you put your arm over your head. Do the symptoms get better or worse? Don't forget that this is a lot more common in females, up to nine to one time, uh, nine, nine females for every male. And that's because somebody has a bra strap dragging down on that shoulder, compressing things. It's because of posture. It's because of anatomy. All of those things combine to create increased stress to the area. There's a couple other clinical pearls on TOS is uh, make sure we look for those double crush partners because a lot of times it's not just the thoracic outlet, it's somebody else as well. Especially if somebody's been involved in a motor vehicle collision that up to a fourth of patients who have whiplash have a TOS component. So now the question is, once we've identified that and we know that they have TOS, what do we do? Dr. Steele, I want to know what your favorite exercise is for a TOS patient. And we're going to figure that out just after the break. As evidence-based chiropractors, we know the benefits of our care. It's safe, it's natural, and it's a drug-free approach to better health. But does the general public know this? Here at ChiroUp, we are driven by our passion to promote the chiropractic industry. So we produced a chiropractic commercial for the public. It's an invaluable piece of content for you to share with your patients, community, and more. And it's free to you. Head on over to ChiroUp.com, click on resources, and find the Natural Solutions Toolkit to watch, download, and share. All right, so my favorite exercise is actually the corner pec stretch. Now, I got to explain this one because most TOS issues are unilateral. However, I'm going to actually stretch this bilateral, and I don't do it because I need to stretch the other side. However, I think this exercise is actually easier to perform bilaterally than unilaterally. And with most people having upper cross syndrome, I don't think it's doing the patient any kind of a disservice. Uh, the corner pec stretch is actually fairly simple. It's finding a corner of your house. And if your patients tell you they don't have a corner in their house, they'll find any excuse. Create a corner, close a door, figure it out, go in your, your, your garage. Um, however, you're going to have both elbows pinned up against the, the corner. You're going to have be in a lunge position and you're going to slowly lunge in towards the wall with your arms right at about 90 degrees of abduction uh, with your elbows and your hands on the wall. Once you kind of lunge in as far as possible before those pecs start to tighten up, then create a little bit of counter force. You're going to take your elbows and you're going to gently push them both into the wall at the same time with about maybe 10 to 15 
15% of your force. Hold that for seven seconds and then relax. And when you relax, don't move your body, just relax the, the pressure on the wall and then let your body sink a little bit closer into the wall, go to that new end range, and then once again, uh, contract and relax for those seven seconds. Do that for three or four contract relax cycles. It's really gonna open up that space uh, and the costoclavicular space and then it's gonna stretch out the pecs and get those, uh, those tissues a little bit more mobile. Yeah, my favorite would be the ulnar nerve floss. That the study that you brought up at the very beginning talked about how thoracic outlet syndrome patients oftentimes have limited flexibility of the ulnar nerve all the way down chain, that the neurodynamics are altered. So I love giving them an ulnar nerve floss, especially those 90% who fall in that characteristic distribution of, an, of a C8 into their pinky. And the ulnar nerve floss, this one's going to be literally impossible to describe on the air. So what I would encourage you to do is to jump into the Cairoa Clinical Pearls tab and just Google or, or check out the ulnar nerve floss. You'll see a, a video demonstration of that and then how you can prescribe that for patients as well. It's basically taking your hand from a handshake into making an upside down monocle. And again, a description won't do it justice, so I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to check that out. If by chance you don't have access to Cairo, number one, I'm sorry, but number two, I'll, I'm happy to send you a video of that. So if you hit me up at Tim at Cairo Up, I'll send you a quick video so that you can see how to do that and how to do it properly. That's not his real email. He's just trying to put you on a list. <laughs> Um, a couple more things to cover. Uh, I think that uh, going through some, some more research, I, uh, I'm going to skip ahead in our outline just a little bit because I, I want to go over this Herzog paper because there's one that just came out last year. Uh, I don't think he was the lead author in the paper, uh, but it talked about uh, during cervical spine manipulation, uh, which most of us use, you know, cervical spine extension rotation at the time, that the artery length in that area does not change. Um, I'm sorry. It changes a little bit, but does not exceed past the slack length. So those vertebral arteries are stretched a little bit, however, not significantly. And I don't know Walter Herzog. Um, I just know that I've read a lot of his papers. And I was uh, curious on how many people are actually reading these papers, because to me, that's kind of important. And I know Dr. Burleson just put out a, a wonderful blog on cervical spine manipulation, um, and I highly recommend checking out the blog. Um, however, this, just Walter Herzog, he cited in over 36,000 different peer-reviewed articles. So the, the takeaway that for that is, is that we do have researchers out there that are working for us. We are seeing the research start to substantiate what we say. And once again, as if I don't have to say it, or have to say it again, uh, manipulation is safe, uh, it's effective, and um, we should continue to use it for those patients who, who need it. Yeah, we were reinforced by another study in December of 2022. This was BMC Geriatrics, 53 million Medicare patients. And what they found is that there was um, no link between cervical spine manipulation and arterial dissection. So one of the things that we've done with those studies is we've updated our safety of spinal manipulation infographic. If you're looking for new stuff in Cairo, go to the forms library and uh, uh, search for safety of cervical manipulation. You'll see the new infographic. The other thing that I would encourage you to do is to check out the webinar that we have a dizziness webinar where we're going to talk about CAD, we'll talk about BPPV, as well as cervicogenic vertigo. Uh, that's released at this point in time, so you should be able to access that now. Uh, the infographic is there. Check out that webinar, and we'll look forward to connecting with you next time on the next podcast. Yeah, that ends uh, this podcast. I think that uh, one of the things that I will ask of you, um, if, if you'll... 
you know, hopefully, uh, leave a comment for us. Leave us uh, an email. We've given our, our email a couple times. Uh, you can leave comments on the blog. Um, but Brandon at Cairo Up, Tim at Cairo Up, uh, this is something that we enjoy doing. If you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, uh, please let us know. Um, we'd be happy to, uh, to put your questions on here and, and hopefully answer them. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit CairoUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.